Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So we haven't established a link between comedy and national security, but maybe there is one. Did you know Wanda Sykes worked for the NSA before she went into stand-up? What other comedians might be privy to government secrets? What if Bob Hope, what if he were like a super spy? You know, think about all the countries he got to go to and places he performed. <laughs> what if he was real? The, the whole comedian thing was a, a ruse and he was really a, a spy. I mean, that yeah. is really putting in some work on your cover. Like, right. if you're right. Bob Hope. Yeah, but think about it. The comedy really wasn't that sharp. So maybe he was <laughs> doing <laughs> Like the it's reason. Like, how is this guy this famous? I think if, definitely if you're yeah. my generation, you grew up wondering why people liked Bob Hope. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, it was a government sponsored initiative. A, yes. <laughs> All propaganda. <laughs> it's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Wanda Sykes about stand up comedy, race, coming out. And her character, Biggie Shorty, a standout role in one of the greatest films ever made. Just likes to stand on the corner. Yeah. And, you know, dress fancy. <laughs> Hang out with the whores. <laughs> That's just their thing. But first, I'll talk to another fantastic comedian, Maria Bamford. Her new Netflix show, Lady Dynamite, finds humor in her own struggles with mental illness. She's doing better now, but she says her medication has its drawbacks. Some of the medications I'm on allow for sleep at night, and um, that really shut down some of my productivity. <laughs> I was doing a lot of vacuuming and writing at night. <laughs> no more! Plus, I'll tell you about an indie rock band too enigmatic to do interviews, so if you haven't heard of Black Moth Super Rainbow, that might be why. All that coming up this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In Maria Bamford's new show, Lady Dynamite, she plays herself in a few points in her relatively recent life. As a successful comic, trying to find love and show business stability in Los Angeles, as a harried member of a loving but very unusual family while in outpatient therapy in Duluth, Minnesota, and in a mental institution, being treated for bipolar disorder. All of these are based on Maria's real life. The tone isn't grim and raw, like you might expect from a show like this. Just like Maria's stand-up, it's fun and it's unpredictably surreal. Here's a scene from Lady Dynamite. Maria's talking with her manager, Bruce. She's just finished her outpatient treatment. Bruce is played by Fred Malamed. Their meeting is interrupted at the end by a call. Uh, now that you're back in town, you tell me exactly what you want to do. Uh, TV show, movie, world comedy tour, and I'm going to take a real shot at getting it for you. Yeah. Uh, Chantrell, get me the uh, hidden big opportunities list, would you? Okay, I would like to do less, not more. That's the thing. I'm going to be less ambitious, or maybe not ambitious anymore. Less ambitious? 
No work for Maria. I mean, I wouldn't work a, a little, but uh, just smaller things, less pressure, maybe stand up at a bookstore or alone in my living room or at a vintage eye glass shop or... Look, sweetheart, you're not pulling back because of me, are you? Because I can reel in that big fish. I mean, I can land the monster shark. Believe me, you've seen the desk. No, no, this is, this is not about you at all. I'm just trying to get some balance in my life. I know I've... I've done some things I regret, and I made some enemies, I'm sure, from some of my behavior, and I'd like to make that... Mark Sugar Ray McGrath. Okay, what? The singer? Don't listen to her, she's useless. (laughs) (laughs) Maria Bamford, welcome back to Bullseye, it's good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. That was a real thing in your life, that you went to your management and asked to have less career. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that is true. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you've read the writer Tom Hodgkinson's. Uh, he's a British uh, humorist, some might say, some might say philosopher, uh, who talks about the uh, the art of being idle and uh, that um, it's an environmental cause to do to do less to loaf. And <laughs> that's that's what we're doing in our family is just more of that. I genuinely can't do as much as I as I used to and and uh some of the medications I'm on uh allow for sleep at night and um that really shut down some of my <laughs> productivity. <laughs> I was doing a lot of vacuuming and writing at night. <laughs> no more. But, I mean, look, I've met your manager, whose real-life name is Bruce. Bruce. And he's a very nice man, uh, especially for a show business guy. Yes. But uh, it still takes some courage and good reasons to go into your manager's office and say, I want less. <laughs> yes. I, um, I am the king of no. Uh, I'm like... <laughs> I don't – yeah, it is – but the thing is then the things that you do do, you enjoy them so much more. And uh, I think at least – especially in the entertainment industry but maybe in every industry now because we're all self-employed, there is the feast or famine thing like, oh, well, I got to take it now. I got to do it now. I'm – you know, I've heard many of my friends say, I'm in my prime earning years. Oh, jeez. <laughs> What? Oh, God. Um, so there's that panic for, for me. And so I think I, I'm trying to uh, just live within my means. Yet my means do not define me. Um, I can live uh, – I can enjoy a taco, uh, uh, which is very inexpensive in my neighborhood. Uh, and then – so it's, it's okay. Uh, I don't have to make as much money. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedian Maria Bamford. Her new somewhat autobiographical sitcom is called Lady Dynamite. It launches on Netflix this week. Uh, When you were uh, younger and you were manic, did you come up with plans? Uh, No. When I was hypomanic, so I didn't ever – I didn't have a psychosis or – that part does run in my family, so I am – uh, that's why I want to stay on meds because I'm in danger of doing that. I would get very um, obsessed if I had OCD 
Um, oh, when I say plans, I don't mean plans of suicide. No, I just mean plans <laughs> in a broader sense. Because um, I think that's something that yes. that often manic people, you know, the idea of valuing relationships and quiet time does not come naturally to someone right. who's manic. Yes, I definitely. I wanted to. I, I mean, I think I came out to Los Angeles. I thought oh, I want to have a a TV show. I want to. Uh, be extremely successful and et cetera, et cetera. But also my brain was also fighting me on that because I did have depression. It was, ter- you know, uh, relatively terrible. So I was sort of an energized depressive, you know, like having just enough energy to hurt myself. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely had more grandiose visions. I'm not grandiose, but uh, once – it became an option to start working constantly. Like, oh, you can tour the world. I did the Edinburgh Festival three times and did, you know, could have gotten a European agent. Oh, you could do Hong Kong? What? Uh, then just more and more. And you can uh, really become extremely productive. And that I just kept feeling worse and worse. That led for me to a breakdown. Now, other people, I know, love it. Like, they're extroverted. They love, um, I mean, I think somebody like Kathy Griffin, I mean, she loves touring from what I can tell and from what I've heard her say is, you know, she she enjoys uh, being on the road and in work, work itself. And so I feel super ashamed. It's been very embarrassing to not uh, not be as productive as I, I feel like I once was. But, um, oh, well. But what kind of? But I can't imagine that what you're characterizing as productivity was ultimately very productive for you. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's the question. Like, you go, oh well, was I, you know, spending two months touring on Australia? Was that helpful? <laughs> like, was it because I was slightly miserable? But was that, <laughs> uh, you know? Did I become a better stand-up? Because it is a real mixed blessing. You know, I remember I did Vegas for a couple of weeks, and it was miserable. I did terribly, but I did get used to doing uh, a half hour of material in front of people who did, were not enjoying it, and I just <laughs> got used to doing my time which was extremely useful. And that was one of the only places I could do it, which is a one Vegas provides is such a generous city uh, <laughs> in that it just provides a space, especially at least for comics. Like I felt like I got one TV credit and I was allowed to be a middle up there. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I felt like I was paid, paid reasonably well. I think it was $700 a week to, go up and and I really bombed and um and I was not fired and I'm grateful. Thank you, Harris. So what <laughs> um where were you at when you ended up having the breakdown a few years ago? Well, it was just kind of a slow burn where I was trying to handle it. You know, I was like, okay, I am not feeling well in a whole new way, like in a way that is really bad. And I I, ha- I went to a new psychiatrist and they said, you are genuinely 
starting to talk too fast. I think you need to be on a mood stabilizer. And I felt very offended by that and thought, well, that's dumb and I don't agree with it. But then I kept feeling really terrible. Um, and then friend of mine, uh, or I told a friend of mine, hey, if you think I'm going to talk too fast, you tell me. And I'll, I'll go into some place for 72 hours and I'll go on one of those mood stabilizers. So I did that. My friend did that. <laughs> she was like, yeah. And my friend Amy, and uh, she drove me to Las Encinas. I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh- <laughs> this, is a real, this is a real, like, uh, Yelp profile of oh, recommendations. and It was not good. It, I, I don't as think it was as a result of any of the employees, but I think the it was just um, – I wouldn't say dirty. Um, let's say um, extremely worn. And then there's ultimate fighting playing on a giant screen TV and uh, half puzzles. Have you ever seen a, a puzzle that's a half puzzle where half the pieces are gone? And just You're throw out the <laughs> puzzle. Throw out the puzzle. <laughs> Toss the puzzle. You're really just <laughs> describing like a kind of like a, like an obstacle course for mental wellness. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, and and some of the things which this is terrible, but they said, okay, so on one of the walls they had this schedule for health and wellness. So on the wall was like this fake fantasy schedule of like, oh, we do stretching at nine, and then we talk to each other at. 10 and then sing song along none of it happened it did not exist and <laughs> that was it was even more like crazy making like oh i guess we're not being good enough <laughs> we don't get to do the there's no marshmallows around the campfire tonight because it's just and that was where the psychiatrist googled me during the session because <laughs> i told him by mistake, I said I was a comedian, and he he said he had to YouTube me because he was concerned I might be delusional. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, if I had said I was Richard Pryor, certainly, certainly, but at least have the it is courtesy. It's a real job. <laughs> have the courtesy to IMDb me when I've left the room. <laughs> I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guest is Maria Bamford. Her new comedy show, Lady Dynamite launches on Netflix this week. One of the things uh, uh, someone close to me was institutionalized briefly, and one of the things that I heard is is a kind of feeling like the levels of mental crisis vary widely among the people that are in the institution, from folks who are there very temporarily to folks who are there less temporarily and, you know, folks with all different kinds of conditions. And one of the most difficult things is that, um, you know, both the kind of levels and the kinds of mental competency just are all over the map. Mm-hmm. And so there's – you're just never sure what the where the other people are at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. And saying. it makes you feel like you're not sure where you're at too. Yeah, yeah. No, and I wasn't there at all. Like I feel like uh, at that point every moment of – consciousness had become unbearable. Like I was just, I could not get any um, 
except when I was sleeping, uh, I just was uh, – I can't, I can't really even explain it. I, I guess it must be like physical pain when you feel something. It, it just was uh, psychiatric. I, I, I just – I now understand why people kill themselves, uh, like to end the uh, the agony of it. Um, so I was, I was there at this hospital for three days and they put me on a mood stabilizer whose primary side effects uh, were – uh, oh no! Of course, I can't remember the word for it. Primary. <laughs> Thanks to the primary side exactly effects exactly of, your current of my current. Mood <laughs> it's our cognitive. They're right. cognitive, making it difficult to think or talk. And uh, then I went back out on the road almost immediately, and ended up in Chicago. And I was just totally confused. I, I, it was like two hours before showtime, and I'd lost all my identification, and I was like bleeding I'd cut myself on the cab and I was I just I have never I just I had tried telling my jokes to myself and I they weren't coming out so I canceled about six shows (laughs) at the last minute and and then went back in again but I went to the Glendale Adventist Medical Center and uh also not fun (laughs) Uh, they got a little cement courtyard in there where you can walk around an orange cigarette bucket. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> it's called a pop of color. It's called a pop of exactly. Oh, uh, and their outpatient program is very good, actually. I do. Um, I did appreciate that. I mean, also it's like you're you're feeling terrible, so uh, nothing's going to be that great. Um, yeah, so. But and then I, w- I went in there another time, uh, just because I yeah I was just trying to get stabilized. I kept feeling like oh I, oh I got it, you know. And then trying to go back to work and then going, oh no, no I don't, <laughs> you know, feeling scared to be by myself in a hotel room or whatever. Was there something that changed, or uh, and if something changed, was it as gradual as the things that changed that led you to that point, or or was it a more of a realization? I think it was definitely medication oriented. Like I have never felt this good in my life of feeling like sort of even keel where uh, I can – it's been since like 2011 that I've been on – I'm on Depakote and Seroquel and Prozac and I – it's just sort of a way where I feel like, yeah, I don't have those rushes of energy and productivity. And now I totally understand. Like I used to not uh, have any compassion for people would say, I just can't get things done. I'd be like, you jackass. Like I'd just be <laughs> so irritable with people like who could not get things done. I'd be like, and now I understand that. I go, oh, yeah, I lost focus and I got tired. And so <laughs> – don't know if that's good or bad, but um, I, I do feel genuinely um, happier, I think, and I'm having a fuller life experience. And yeah, but I think it was definitely medication oriented. And then starting to connect, reconnect with friends, reconnect with uh, the world, and seeing that it was okay, that nobody cared or nobody noticed, and you know, it didn't matter. Do you feel like you got some of the 
opposite of that? Yes, uh, exactly. I got the total opposite of that. People who I had no idea about, you know, took me to lunch and said, I saw snakes and then I was in a psychiatric hospital for, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God. This is so awesome. Don't tell me more about the snakes. You know, and so it's just uh it's and it gives me solace knowing too that if something like that would happen again, that I'd be okay. Um my mom had a episode uh in her sixties and oh goodness. Uh <laughs> The outcome, which is now she has a fifteen grand in a savings account that's just for her, just in case she wants to stay at a nice hotel when she's manic. <laughs> <laughs> she and my dad have an arrangement, <laughs> but she's also staying on her meds. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a dual front attack. Oh, so funny. Yeah, I haven't had the – well, I guess I've had a little bit of the money thing. But I've got – I get more obsessed with um, ethical or moral quandaries. One of the storylines in the show is that I'm anxious about working for this giant corporation as a commercial. And that is exactly what happened with Target. I started getting So you were anxious. doing – you had done a uh, for a few years a series of holiday commercials for Target. Where, yes. Where you played a kind of semi-satirical – Savings Mad Shopper. Savings Mad Shopper, and which was super fun to play. But then all of a sudden, and, and not all of a sudden, um, I've always <laughs> felt that uh, people should be paid a living wage. But once realizing, oh, it's maybe this is bad, what I'm you know, trying to tell people to shop, accumulate, uh, the workers overseas are maybe are not – being paid a living wage, it's affecting the environment, however, because they don't have any regulations of how to, you know, so, um, yeah. So I started to get really wigged out about that. And, uh, yeah, I went to a priest. Uh, and and then and then I, I think it was part their choice to end the campaign. Maybe they could have, could tell I was going Benunu. Uh, but... For whatever reason, because I remember the last thing I did for Target, I think my hair was falling out. Like I was really stressed. And so, um, and I remember just feeling really mixed about it that, um, yeah, it was a fun character, but it was also a very lonely character. She was by herself, just shopping. And when I went to the manager's conference at they have, I think once a year, they have a manager's conference. And, you know, I think Target is a wonderful company and I shop there and I think they do a lot of great things. But one of the things I noticed is that they um, showed all the employees in the U.S. and how well they're treated. And, you know, I don't know if that's totally true <laughs> because I've heard differently uh, that people are uh, – there's union busting there and people are kept at part-time, et cetera. Um, yeah. Th and, and that I think was also hard for me as a comedian to go, oh, and I can't talk about it. I am under agreement to not talk about it. And that felt terrible. But I was starting to get so obsessed with it. I just thought I'm going to either – I'm going to crash and burn and say something really bizarre, <laughs> you know. In front of, or you know, and 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 do something hurtful to a giant corporation that um, 
and really it would be to myself too because i i'm sure they wouldn't change <laughs> i'm sure that we i think we've oh i don't know i'm, I'm not sure if they would change their uh hello ceo of yeah Target. exactly i have maria bamford here yeah oh goodness well there's that story in the bible esther you know the story of esther what happens to esther Esther is a Jew, and they have a big beauty contest, and the king chooses her as his wife. Then his terrible executive director says, oh, guess what? You know what I think is a great idea? Let's kill all the Jews. Esther hadn't told him that she was a Jew, and so was her whole family. Whoops. She makes this meal for him like a whole banquet, has a big party, and then is going to tell him she can't do it. Makes a whole meal, has a big party for him, can't do it. Then finally gets up the courage of the third party, rule of three, and then she tells him, and then he goes, oh, my God, oh, my God, I will not kill the Jews, and I will not do that, and I'm going to actually kill this executive director guy. Well, I want to say his name was Hammond, but that may I be wrong about that. Um so I did do the Target ad for three years. <laughs> I never got the courage to, to take Oprah aside and say, Oh, you know how you advocate for this company? Did you realize like, dur- like during the manager's thing, they had this incredible, just like all these, they had Tony Bennett, James Taylor, uh, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Oprah, like incredible artists, everyone performing. Then they had this recognition of all the employees um, at Target and, you know, a few abroad in India who do the computer stuff. And then no mention of how it's distributed or how it gets there or how it's made. Just no mention. Where do all these magical objects come from? (laughs) I just thought that was so... Uh, funny and um, anyways but I didn't I didn't want to get sued nor did I want to like it was such a it was a funny idea that brought people a lot of joy so I didn't want to harsh anybody's mellow and it's a great place to get I found especially uh, plastic storage bins <laughs> it really is that and La Croix La Croix water oh yeah the oh, sparkling they, water comes in all the all flavors all the types so many flavors, and especially like the limited flavors or the new flavors. Also, aesthetically, it's an attainable museum. <laughs> like, I had a friend, her dad died, and they all went to Target afterward because they really just want to cheer themselves up and see things in, a, <laughs> in colors that are, you know, in a way that where it's like, I mean, that takes skill. And planning. And no, I, I love a Target. I am, uh, please still let me in. <laughs> My guest Maria Bamford has a new Netflix show called Lady Dynamite. It's about her life as a comedian and her previous life with her family uh, while undergoing outpatient psychiatric care and in a mental institution. And um, I want to I play another scene from the show. So your character, Maria, uh, has this assistant wasn't barely an assistant and she pressures you into going on a date and the person on the date is a a former meth addict yes uh and 
a vowed bisexual named Shane. Um, <laughs> and uh, he turns out to be very handsome. Which the legal department had asked me, oh, is there you know one person we got to make sure? And I'm like, no, I've dated two, two <laughs> bisexual meth addicts. <laughs> so we're covered. <laughs> Um, they go. They go on this. They go on. They, they go on this one date, and it goes really nicely. Um, and he's very. He's very handsome, and they find a lot of parallels between their personal struggles. Mm-hmm. And um, then this scene is in a restaurant uh, where they've gone for dinner, and the restaurant is called a serious scene. <laughs> I was almost in a serious scene on West Wing, but I got fired. Well, I know that feeling. When I was jacked on meth, I got fired all the time. I almost killed Rob Reiner twice while doing squat spots. FYI, you cannot lift a 375-pound man on meth. I'm not being fair. That was a good week for him. It was more like 349. But for all the bad stuff, you know what's weird? I miss the meth. That's not weird at all. I miss the energy of mania. I may have been contemplating suicide 18 hours a day, but my baseboards were spotless. <laughs> you know what I don't miss about meth is waking up with some strange man in my bed. It's funny because I get in trouble if I don't take my meds, but you get in trouble if you do. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about the last – I mean, look, you've had a very colorful last few years of your life. But w- one of the m- many colors in that palette is that you started dating and eventually married your husband. Yes. Um, whose name is Scott and he's Scott Marvel really, Cassidy. And he's a really lovely guy. He is. Before you met him, did you feel like you were – going to find someone to share your life with? Well, I've always dated a long, you know, I went on a, a, about, I want to say at least a hundred internet dates. I'm a, I'm willing to try. And, um, <laughs> and then it had, had tried to have relationships, you know, lasted about a, a year. And a lot of times I don't think I had the wherewithal to, uh, calm down and commit to something like, cause it takes, it does take a uh, time. Relationships do, it turns out. Uh, friendships and um, if you care about somebody, you have to sit there and listen <laughs> every once in a while. And uh, I just – I wasn't as good at, at that and uh, – uh, or – yeah, so I think in the past – few years for sure i i've become and i think part of because the health crisis thing just feeling like oh there's no time to wait and i don't don't have to be perfect to be loved and love someone and i think i I definitely got that from that experience of like you know people people love me or or seeing also people in the hospital like they had husbands and wives and and uh, children and they were living lives and they went through a health crisis and then they went back out and I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess I, I've always thought I had to achieve something in, until I was ready to have a wonderful, loving experience. And not that it's – I mean I, I also want to say that it's 
relationships do not come naturally to me. My first instinct is to, I mean, there's, yeah, me moving to California from Minnesota was for also because I'm not, you know, wasn't very good with my family. I think I do impersonations with my family so I can better feel like I'm connected to them. Um, I don't know. You know, there's, I, I think uh, I'm just grateful. That I can have a nice relationship. I don't know if it's because I have largely met your husband when he's been with you and you've been doing professional stuff like right. coming to do a podcast or going to do an event. But he seems to have a really lovely, uh, peaceful quality to him. Yes, yes. He is. I mean, he well, he he has his own nervous Nellies. He's but but he is he's a calming effect on me. And uh, yeah, he's a good dude, and he loves to paint. And the, I think it, it's nice. Like we can relate to each other as artists, and um, and he he loves the dogs. We I I always like old pugs, and he's totally on board with an old pug. And, uh, yeah, it's been, it's just been super, I feel so grateful and exciting. It's a, as I think I say in the first episode, it's a, it's a late in life opportunity. What a boon. (laughs) I'll continue my conversation with one of my absolute favorite comedians, Maria Bamford, after a break. We'll talk about the recent successes in her personal and professional lives. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from the Black Tux, a modern way to rent tuxedos and suits. The Black Tux designs and manufactures handsome suits and tuxedos for rent fast and easy online. You can select from complete looks or build your own. And the Black Tux customer service team is on hand to lend assistance with fitting needs. Shipping's free both ways, so after an event, use the box the tuxedo or suit came in to send it back. Visit theblacktux.com slash bullseye. Experience a new way to rent. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Try out the NPR One app for your phone for conversations you won't hear anywhere else. This week, find Guy Raz's exclusive interview with TED curator Chris Anderson, where they discuss the TED phenomenon and the secret to giving a great TED Talk. Find their conversation by searching TED Radio on the NPR One app, where you can also find stories from your local station and more great podcasts. NPR One is on your app store now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the brilliant comedian Maria Bamford. Her new TV show, Lady Dynamite, launches on Netflix this week. Maria, I, yeah. you, um, you're someone who, by personality, often thinks a lot about their responsibilities towards the world and towards others, um, uh, sometimes uh, ahead of yourself. And I, I, as we've heard to some extent in this conversation, and I wonder if you've been able to enjoy the fact that, you know, you've been doing this pretty difficult form of comedy. I mean, both difficult to execute and difficult to appreciate. That sounds like an insult, but I mean it in the absolute best <laughs> no, way. No. It's like a literary novel of comedy. Oh, that's oh, that's um, wonderful. No, uh, I appreciate that. That's wonderful. And you have, you know, I especially keep trying in the last... to read it. I keep trying to like it. 
especially in the last five or eight years, you've really come to be very successful and like, you know, change people's lives with your art and, and be appreciated and stuff. And I wonder if you're able to process that and appreciate it without thinking about all the things that might be wrong with it <laughs> or that you should be doing more yes, of. Yes. Yes. I, t- I do. I'm, I'm, I am super, I'm super psyched. Feel, you know, feel, uh, useful in society and feel like, uh, more connected, uh, with the world. And I, but I really, the stand-up thing, saying that that's more difficult than any other job in life, I just, I don't think it's true. I just, <laughs> it's, to show up to a nine-to-five job takes an enormous amount of emotional, spiritual, mental chutzpah. Like, I, I, I did secretarial work, and, you know, that was not my passion, but to be there and to be pleasant to, for eight hours at a time, Anybody who's doing that or or manual labor or, you know, people are holding down three jobs at once, that stand-up is a breeze. Like, especially uh, especially for me now. Oh, my God. With the Internet, the Internet is just – it makes it so easy to find your people. You know, so it's like I'm, I'm almost, uh, just very rarely put in a place where I would be ever heckled or – but I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing, but uh, it definitely takes the fright factor out of it. <laughs> of uh, uh oh, <laughs> like I, I don't have to do the long shows of you know Wednesday through Sunday and just seven shows and second show Friday where nobody knows what they've come to see and all the shows are you just have to go back to all your old material because it's like oh god nobody likes anything you know i don't have to do those shows anymore i fly in on a tuesday see only my friends <laughs> my people who <laughs> are all pumped and then uh go home so it I, I would say it's a delightful and an ease uh, on many many levels uh, comparatively with other jobs that I've had. I've had food service jobs, and oh, my God. That is – I would have nightmares before waitressing for years. So you're able to be happy even though you don't have the most unpleasant job in the world? Is yes, that what you're telling that's me? That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I know. I'm my father's daughter. My dad, what did he say? He said uh, one of his favorite quotes is, uh, don't be humble. <laughs> you're not that great. <laughs> by Bella Abzug if you're wondering <laughs> well Maria it's, I, I'm always grateful to get to spend time with you so thank, thank you, you so for much. coming and uh, thanks for your great new show and your amazing work oh yeah thank you so much Jesse thank you for having me on I love I listened to the show on KPCC here in Los Angeles Maria Bamford's new show Lady Dynamite launches on Netflix this week My next guest on Bullseye is another world-class comedian. Wanda Sykes won an Emmy for her writing on The Chris Rock Show. She's also earned accolades for her stand-up and for her work as an actor. You might have seen her on Blackish, The New Adventures of Old Christine, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Sykes is performing two shows at the Theater at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles this Saturday, May 21st. The shows will be filmed for her epic special out later this year. It's called What Happened, Miss Sykes? Here's a clip from her 2009 special, I'm a Be Me. 
that the only time your race or gender is questioned is when you're not a white man. Right. <laughs> so I, think, I think white men, they get, they get upset, they get nervous. Like a minority or another race get, gets a little power. It makes them nervous because they scared that that race is going to do to them what they did to that race. They get nervous. So they start screaming, reverse racism. This is reverse racism. I'm like, wait a minute, in reverse racism, isn't that when a racist is nice to somebody else? Isn't that for other people? <laughs> That's reverse racism. Like, what you're afraid of is called karma. Wanda Sykes, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the Why, show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As we were playing that clip, you got this far off look in your eye, like you were just visiting yourself from another time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, I I do that. What? Um, it's it's hard to listen. You know, well, I, I guess it's not hard, but I I go back and I'm like, wow, that was really good. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, whew. That was solid. Okay, and and I and I, you know, you always want to do better. You want to, you know, beat yourself. So, uh, I feel yeah, like, I feel like the gold standard for listening back to yourself on this show was one of the Pointer Sisters was in here, and she just fully started singing along with herself. Oh wow! Just one hundred percent, no shame. Just like, yeah, this is a great song. Uh-huh. I'm gonna sing right now. Uh-huh. That's awesome. <laughs> I wish I could do that. Sing, I mean. <laughs> Not be live without yeah. shame. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Just sing. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you had to live without shame, it might be hard to be a stand up comedian. Would, you definitely you have to have some shame <laughs> to be a stand up comic. I think that's that's up top. That's like in the top three. I think. Yeah. So you grew up in Virginia. What kind of Virginia did you grow up in? Um, country Virginia. Cause you like, know, like in the in the woods. I, mean, I would say woods, but um, very rural and. Um, very segregated. I was the, you know, like the first, uh, not the the first, but I, I remember being in second grade and my um, teacher uh, was calling the role. And then when she got to me, you know, I was the only, you know, black kid in the, in the class. She was like, Wanda Sykes. And I raised my hand. She said, oh, my God, I'm just so thrilled. You're the first colored girl I ever get to, talk to, uh, to teach. I'm like, you're the first colored girl. Yeah. And and I thought it was like an honor. I'm like, well, <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm your first. And not realizing how horrible that was. But, yeah, she was so excited that she got to teach a little colored girl. You were, you were a grown-up when you started your career, right? Yes. Yes. I was a grown-up. I had benefits and, uh, you know, a good job and everything. I was working for the National Security Agency. So, yeah, I, you know, I had a career. As an international um, super mm-hmm. spy? I, I, I so wish it could have been that interesting. <laughs> that would have been awesome. That would have been awesome. But no, no. I was uh, just basically uh, buying things. I was a contracting specialist. I think the problem is that if you had been an international super spy, even if you became a comic, that's automatically your hook. And it's real yes. limiting to be the super spy comic. Because um, there's not a lot you're allowed to talk about. You know about what? And... Yeah, it is. But just think about it, though, because, like, comics, like, what, what if Bob Hope, what if he were, like, a super spy? You know, think about all the countries he got to go to and places he performed. <laughs> what if he was real? The, the whole comedian thing was a, a ruse, and he was really 
a, a spy. I mean, that yeah. is really putting in some work on your cover. Like, right. if you're right. Bob Hope. Like, yeah. Because Bob, yeah. Bob Hope was out there. Right. You know, he was hitting the boards at 85. It. Yeah, but think about it. The comedy really wasn't that sharp. So maybe he was <laughs> doing <laughs> Like the reason, like, how is this guy this famous? I think if, definitely if you're yeah. my generation, you grew up wondering why people liked Bob Hope. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, it was a government-sponsored was a, initiative. Yes. <laughs> All propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> um, you grew up in a military family, right? Yes. Was yeah. how was it the kind of military family that I imagine when I imagine a military family, like everybody no. is really serious and you have to do things in a specific way or no. that kind of thing? No, no, no. Um, we were so not that family that my father, he um, never wanted us to live on base. We always lived off base. Um, and I, I think that was good. He, You know, he, he looked at it as the military, that was his job, it, you know, and so he would, he went to the, military base and did his job and he would come home and we had, you know, regular household. Was he always around? Did, was he ever, you were born in the mid sixties. Was he, yeah. was he ever overseas or elsewhere? Um, he had some like times where he went away, but it wasn't for like a, uh, an extended period of time where we had to travel with him. Uh, we were pretty, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I look at, uh, other friends who you know are military families and you know they they off to Germany and Japan and you know all these you know Korea all these crazy places and um, we pretty much went from Virginia to Maryland and that was it. My dad did the rest of the traveling, but like I said, it, the most like six months was like the longest. I remember him going away. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the comedian and actor Wanda Sykes. She's performing live tour dates this spring and summer, and she'll be recording a new stand-up special this weekend in Los Angeles. Living in the uh, the sort of general D.C. area where everybody works for the government and coming from military family, was there an expectation that you would just have the kind of job that you get and you accrue seniority points and you get benefits and you are, you know, stable for the rest of your life? Um, well, that's, that's the way it should have, you know, played out that I was on, yeah, on that path of this is your career. And then I, I could have actually looked at the date that I, you know, could retire and I I just couldn't do it. I I stayed there for about, oh, I think I worked at NSA for about five years, five, six years. And I was, I was moving up. I was getting, you know, getting my promotions, you know, when they were expected um, but it, I just knew it just was not what I was supposed to be doing. Why not? Uh, I just wasn't into it. I'm 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 a I'm a pretty passionate person, and the first few years I was into it, and then I was like, I I don't like this. I I don't even want to do it anymore. And I'm I'm no longer on top of things the way I should be. I knew I was doing a crappy job, and I was like, I got to get out of here because this is this isn't the place where you you know should be slacking off you know <laughs> and and also it I would like look at my time card and if I saw I had you know accumulated like four hours of leave I would take it right then I would go I'd go, hey guys I'm out I'm I, <laughs> you're using your vacation I'm, days to I go am, to the movies yes I would have to I would have to leave like I'm I gotta I gotta get out of here um what was it like the first time you went on stage it was uh it's like magical 
It really was. Because, I, I, you know, I, I had no idea what I was about to subject myself to. You know, I, I hadn't been to a comedy club, so I hadn't seen, you know, th- how what things look like when they go wrong. Were you a comedy fan? I mean, did yeah. you have comedy records that you were listening yeah, to? Yeah, 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 all that stuff. But I just never, you know, had made it into a, a comedy club. Sometimes never, Yeah, the, never saw it live. They're just, the worst. Just on TV. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I got on stage, and I was so loose and had my material, and I, I killed. I I you know, did great. And I was like, this is it. This is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. This is it. You're really bold on stage. And I know some comics who uh, are as bold in life as they are on stage. You know, I know outspoken Mm -hmm. comics who will just, you know, you're just walking down the street and they'll tell you what they think. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I probably know more bold comics who are very different on stage than they are in their life. And being on stage is kind of like, is kind of like in some ways the their ideal version of themselves or at least their most performative version of themselves. Mm-hmm. Which one is the case for you? I'm bold on stage. Uh, off stage, I'm, I, I kind of, I want to say play by the rules, but I, you know, if, if I uh, have a, uh, I'm like, if, if I have a, a seat number. If I go to an event and this is my seat number, I, I have to sit in that seat. You know, I'm not the one that, you know, friends like, oh, look, there, there's some seats down there. Let's go sit down there. We're, you know, get a better seat. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I, I have to, unless someone from the venue comes and tells me, hey, come down here, I will stay in in my seat. What do you do if somebody's in your seat? Uh, that I, I, yeah, I do ask them. I'd say, Hey, Hey man, you know, this, in my seat, you know. One yeah. time I was at a concert with my mom, uh-huh. uh, it was a rap concert and my mom was probably 60 years old at the time. And, what uh, in the world are you doing with your mom? 60 years old. My mom likes, a rap? my mom likes rap music. I mean, she's okay. not like the number one rap fan in the world, okay. but she likes it right. and you know, okay. she was happy right. to go with me. Oh, that's cool. And, uh. She fully almost got in a fight with a lady in front of me. <laughs> Just wow. full on, almost a fit. And my mom's pretty big and tough. Uh huh. Like, I think this lady was maybe in her late 20s. <laughs> and, like, I feel like my mom could have took that lady because this, this big, tall lady just came and stood in front of my mom or something. I can't even remember what happened. Uh-huh. I don't even know oh, what you, was going oh, down. The, if the woman was like in her 20s and your mom's in her 60s, your mother would have whooped her butt. <laughs> I'm telling you, your mom would have. It's like it's like that old Richard Pryor joke. You know, I'm not gonna let you build a reputation on me. You know, your mother had everything at stake. She's like, I'm not gonna let some young girl beat my butt right now. No, I'm taking her down. Your mother. Oh my God, your mother would have gave her such a oh a beating. Tell you, and in front of her son. Oh my gosh, that poor woman. She has no idea what she avoided that night. Your mother would have abused her. Um, at what point in your uh, stage career did you feel like you were doing it right? Like you had found what you were supposed to be doing? Did it come right away, or did it take a while? Um, yeah, definitely. It definitely took a while because before, you know, I, I always think all stand-up comics. Uh, well, I'm not saying all. I hate when I use words like that, but most stand-up comics. They start off as giving you their their impression of what a stand up comic is, 
and what they do, you know, like, hey, I'm going to talk like this. Like, we all kind of like start, start out like Jerry Seinfeld, I think. <laughs> and then it's not until that you get confident and you have um, a, a, a point of view. And because uh, first, first it's about the just getting the cadence and the and the, the construction of, okay, this is a joke. And I know how if I say things this way, it's funny. And then once you get, like I said, the confidence and the and the um and the point of view, then you can start revealing a little bit more of, of yourself. Because at first, if you you know you bomb and you're just doing jokes, you, you can go, oh, people don't like this, didn't like my jokes. But if you start showing some of yourself, then it gets serious. It's like, oh my god, they don't like me. You know, they don't think I'm funny. So it, it it just takes a while. So once I got to the point where I'm doing jokes about me and this is just how I think and just putting it out there, that's when I, I was like, Oh, this okay, now I'm I'm on the on the right path. This is this is what I, I wanted to do, you know. Because the comics I love, that's that's all they did. I'll finish my conversation with Wanda Sykes after a break. She'll tell me about her experiences coming out as gay at the age of forty four. And I'll make sure we talk about one of my favorite comedy movies of all time, the name of which I have been advised by professional lawyers I cannot say on the radio. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, we wanted to let you know that one of your favorite NPR podcasts is back. Invisibilia returns with season two on June 17th. Invisibilia explores the invisible forces that shape human behavior, thoughts, emotions, assumptions, expectations. This season, Invisibilia goes to a prison, an oil rig, a McDonald's in Russia, and a beach in New Jersey to explore the invisible forces at play in our institutions, work, family, governments. You can catch up on season one of Invisibilia anytime and listen to the season two preview starting May 20th at npr.org podcasts and on the NPR One app. Please help to make Bullseye even better by taking a quick survey. Just go to npr.org slash bullseye survey and tell us what you think. That's npr.org slash bullseye survey. Thank you. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Wanda Sykes. She'll record her new stand-up special this weekend. It comes out on Epics later this year. We have some uh, comedy from HBO in 1997, uh, 20 years ago now, um, <laughs> and uh, this is this is Wanda talking about uh, why she's hesitant to have kids. I've been married for five years, man. Five years. I love being married. I do. Like being married. Five years, no kids yet. No kids. I don't know. Was you like, yeah? Like once you have kids, that's a that's a lifelong decision. You in for life, you know. Once you have kids, man, it's just you and the kids. Yeah. You just gotta look at them, and they look at you. And the kids, they know they own you. They know they have you. The kids, they just look at you like you know what? I could hit in the head with my Tonka truck. What's she gonna do? <laughs> um. So did you uh, did you at that time do you think love being married? Uh back then uh yeah I mean I I'm sure I did I got married so yeah <laughs> you know but then again I got divorced so uh I had good intentions <laughs> Did you think of yourself as being gay? Back then? No. No. Uh-uh. How did no. you think of yourself? A married straight woman. 
Did you have misgivings about it? I guess what I'm asking is, do you feel like, was that about you not recognizing something in yourself or was that about something changing in you or, you know, something like that? I think it was, it was definitely about not recognizing something about myself. Yeah, totally, totally that. Because, I mean, you know, all those things, maybe when I was a kid, you know, it was there, but with, you know, just the upbringing and everything, you, you just, you got to, you know, suppress that stuff. Do you feel like I mean, you, I mean, just... you don't have to. I'm just saying back then, that's what, that's what I had to do. So, and then, you, you know, I was, I was like, okay, so yeah, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm into guys and just started dating guys and all along and, uh, yeah, and then, you know, get married and all and, uh, but the, the problem was is that those relationships, although, yeah, Felt like I was in love and, um, you know, got married and everything. But the relationships, there's just a, a, a certain place that I could only go to. And after that, it's this, well, this is about it f- for me, you know. Because I, I know, like, just about everyone, uh, every guy that I'd been with up to that point, they all said the same thing that, you know, I, I just feel like that I could walk out the door right now and, you wouldn't give a damn. And and I would just think in my mind, I was like, mm, you know what? He's kind of right. You know, <laughs> I would be okay. I wouldn't miss a beat. I'd just keep it moving. To what extent do you think that was about the fact that you were gay and you maybe just weren't as interested in romantic love with guys? Right. And how much was it about the fact that you were gay and, and kind of, protecting something about yourself and couldn't, you know, had a hard time in a relationship having the kind of openness with yourself and your partner that you needed to have? Um, I think it was, I, th- I think it was, it was more of the not really aware of, you know, yeah, I guess it was it wasn't not not just not not knowing, you know, um, and and then but but it was like okay, wait a minute, why am I? Why does this keep happening? Why you know, especially after you know I tried marriage and all. Okay, now wait a minute, why is this? Why do I keep repeating myself? What what's going on? And it was uh, you know, talking to people. Uh, actually going to therapy, you know, um, I think like one night, uh, you know, drinking, whatever, some girlfriends, and I probably tried to make a couple moves on, you know, a couple of <laughs> girls there. And it was like, whoa, where'd that come from? You know, and it's like, yeah, I probably should go talk to someone. And then it, that was after after that. And it was like, oh, so that's what's going on. Okay. So I said, okay, well, let me try this. And then once I did, it would it just, again, like comedy. Oh, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have, obviously, the, the greatest well of insight about this as a straight white dude myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if part of the challenge of it, of, like, acknowledging and embracing that part of yourself, is that you're already uh, – black female comic and it's like really i'm gonna open up a new front yeah yeah it's like do i need this too How, you know am i why do i do you need another reason to hate me why you know 
really? You just gonna go for the just go just three strikes? All right, come on, let's do it. All right, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah, a lot of it was that too. It's the it's the oh, I, I don't want to deal with this. I mean, not just with strangers, but then with the family. I do not want to have this conversation with my parents. I don't. Yeah. Do you feel like it affected your work? Um, either negatively previously or, or positively afterwards? Previously, I I think I, I alluded a couple times to the to uh the fact that, you know, uh that there could be some, you know, lesbian or or at least that I was very um supportive of the gay community. That was there. Um but so yeah, but yeah, I would say b- before it it probably was a hindrance. It was it was you know I was holding back because the thing of of being a a really good comic is to just totally you know be vulnerable and expose yourself and and you know, have no fear. So I, I think before yeah it it, it did it it was it, it was it was kind of like you know a little debilitating. But afterwards, man, it's just opened up you know everything. It's it's just like total freedom. I walk out there with just one purpose, and that's to, you know, do my best and make people laugh and not having any other, you know, little fears or anything in the back of my head going, watch out, don't say that, don't say that, you know, so, yeah. I want to play some uh, comedy from your special from 2003, Mm -hmm. Tongue Untied. Okay. My guest is Wanda Sykes. Um, So this is Wanda talking about a, a sitcom that was offered to her. Got a show coming out, my own sitcom coming out, and uh, you know I'm really excited about it because it's it's a it's an idea that I came up with, you know. And before you get to do a show that you want to do, you got to listen to all they bad ideas, <laughs> and they had a lot of bad ideas. You know, my agent would call me and she's like, uh, "Wanda, you only want to hear this." I was like, "No, tell me what is it?" She's like, "All right, they want you to play a maid." And you win the lottery. But you love working for this family so much. You continue to be their maid. I said, set it up. I want to meet these people so I can slap that dumbass idea right out their head. When you when you came out, um, it was almost it, it was almost accidental, right? Like, not right. that you were not that you you figured that you would live uh, the kind of life where you do your thing and people know that need to know, and it's just not I, not a big part of your public identity. I thought I would live my life like most people live their lives, like just normal. Just I didn't, I, I yeah, I, I didn't go there with an agenda to hey, today is it? I'm gonna come out. You mean yeah. like I don't, I interviewed Louis C.K. last week. I did not have a part where I said to him, right. "When did you tell everyone you were straight and right. you were married to a woman?" Exactly. Yeah. So how? What were the circumstances? Um, it was I was in Vegas, and I think I was playing at Planet Hollywood, um, and it was the National Day of Protest um, for the against the the passage of uh, Prop Eight here in California. So. Um, I said, okay, guys, come on, everybody, we're we're gonna find out where the protest is here. Oh, it's at the game. Let's said, okay, let's go over there, and you know, we're gonna be there for the rally. So we were there, and 
a couple people, you know, recognized me and everything. So the woman who was the, the head of the uh, Gay and Lesbian Center, she's given a speech and she said, oh, you know, we have someone here um, with us and she's been such a big supporter of the of the community and uh, we want to thank her. And I'm looking around. I'm like, is Drew Barrymore out here? Is, is it Pink? Drew Barrymore? Who's out here? You know. And she said, so if, if she would come up and say a few words, that'd be great. And uh, and she goes, Wanda Sykes. And I'm like, oh. And then I was like, oh. Hmm. Okay. They think I'm a supporter of the community. They, they don't know I live in the community, you know. So I just, yeah, so I just went up and, and gave my speech. And next thing you know, before... You know, I uh, get back to my hotel room. Uh, my phone is blowing up, and I was like, you know, we just saw you on CNN. I'm like, what? You know, and, uh, yeah, and, and I called my publicist. I was like, uh, she was like, yep, yep, you're out. Good, great. I'm <laughs> like, okay, and that was it. Hey, it's Jesse breaking in here. Uh, so my guest on Bullseye, Wanda Sykes, is about to talk about a movie that she was in. Uh, written and directed by Louis C.K., produced by Chris Rock. It is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, the lawyers at NPR suggested to us that we should not say the name of this movie on the air uh, because it could be confused for a vulgarity. We are going to leave it in here on the podcast, although it was bleeped on the radio. Uh, so congratulations to you. Uh, however, uh, if you have kids who are quick with the free associations, uh, then I would suggest that you know that before you listen to this segment where we are about to say the name of the movie. It rhymes with schmooty schmang. Here we go. It must be, it, it must be a comfort to know that you can walk on stage and not feel like you are catching anyone on the wrong foot when you talk about anything about who you are. Mm -hmm. That you can just go up and be you, right? And people, you know, people know what they're getting mm -hmm. as a comic. Yeah, yeah. But you know, early on though, I, I think a couple people didn't know. I, I think I did catch a couple people off guard because I, you know, would do a show and I, it was weird. I, I, I kind of like garnered this this audience that comes from i mean which i love they they they've become fans from different um shows or you know so there's a nice mixture i have my pootie tang fans you know they're usually high uh <laughs> that i have hey, you know i, I have to be yeah. straight edge, Juana. <laughs> I, I, I have uh you know, curb your enthusiasm, and then just people who've been with me through stand up from the beginning, uh, Chris Rock show, and so I get I have this beautiful group of, of fans. So I when I was going up earlier, right right after I came out, and I'm talking about you know um, being married, and and I would see people get up and and leave like, oh, you guys you guys didn't get the memo. I'm sorry, you know, sorry about that, whatever, and. You know, say, oh, you're going so God won't send you to hell when you die. Is that it? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, God thinks I'm funny, but <laughs> all right, you know, I'm not going to give you your money back, by the way. You know? <laughs> so, but yeah. Well, I'm glad that you brought up Pootie Tang because I've just been waiting for an opportunity uh, to talk about it extensively. Okay. Um, it's a, basically the, along with the film Babe Pig in the City, probably the most important thing <laughs> on this program. 
uh, maybe a little bit of Wet Hot American Summer, but mostly it's just Pootie Tang talk on Bullseye. Okay. All right. Um, let's take a listen to my guest, Wanda Sykes, in Pootie Tang, which is like, if you've never seen Pootie Tang, first of all, you should watch Pootie Tang because uh, it's great. But it's kind of like a surreal tribute to black exploitation. the premise of which is that uh, Pootie Tang, the titular character, is so cool he doesn't actually have to use words. And uh, Biggie Shorty, Wanda Sykes' character, is a streetwalker who is, uh, has a similar level of self-possession and coolness. And so in this scene, uh, she's on the corner. She's dancing, which is like the main thing she does. Listen, right. listen to her Walkman and dance around on the corner. And a guy asks her how much. How much you do this to much? How much? Hey, baby, what's your problem? Just because a girl like to dress fancy and stand on the street corner near some whores, you automatically think she's hooking? Would you? He just likes to stand on the corner. Yeah. And, you know, dress fancy. <laughs> hang out with the whores. That's just their thing. <laughs> what's wrong with that? <laughs> One of the things that's so great to me about Pootie Tang, I mean, besides just this, it's just one of the funniest things, albeit a little bit of a mess, but oh. uh, a lot of a mess, but real funny. And uh, one of the things that's really great about it, it's something that um, I've talked with uh, Chris Rock and grew out of the Chris Rock show and mm-hmm. talked with Louis C.K., who, who directed it, mm-hmm. um, is that it's rare that you get to see a comedy that is mostly African-American performers where they are being really silly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's. You, you, when have you seen like a, uh, a like black uh, Monty Python? Uh, not saying that we were <laughs> Python at all, but um, yeah, I think that that was the beauty of it. It's it's uh, just stepping out of the out of the norm. You know, just why can't why can't we be silly? No, I mean, I think it's, you know, if you if you want to talk about what white privilege is, mm-hmm. you know, one of the big things is that you get to step out of the norm because there's just a lot of white people. <laughs> and, you know, when you're the main voice, you can you can be an alternative voice. And when you're fundamentally an alternative voice, because uh, there's just a lot less people whose skin right. is your color, then you don't get to do that. Exactly. <laughs> or it's a lot harder to get to do that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're black and you're doing comedy, you you better just be damn funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, well, I, can I explore this? You know? Nope. Nope. Stay in this lane. But the, the thing that I love about Biggie Shorty, as with Pootie Tang, but it is the the self-possession that she has is mm-hmm. so extreme. Oh, yeah. It must have been just a thrill to get to do. That was so much fun. Yeah. I mean, she has such conviction and like, what the, I, yeah, she owned that. She (laughs) owned it. And that was so much fun doing that. Like, it's just great to just walk in a room and go, I'm right. (laughs) I am right. And there's nothing that you can say (laughs) that would make me think otherwise. What a feeling. <laughs> Wanda Sykes, I so appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was, oh, thanks it for was having a me. Genuine honor to have you on the show. So I admire your work. It. Thanks a lot.
Thanks for having me. Wanda Sykes. If you live in L.A., you can see her performing at the theater at the Ace Hotel this Saturday, the 21st. She's filming for her epic special, which will be out later this year. It's called What Happened, Miss Sykes? She's also out on tour this spring and summer. Details are at wandasykes.com. Sadate, Wanda. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. I once tried to book an interview with the band Black Moth Super Rainbow. I actually didn't specify which members of the band. The leader's name is Tobacco. Other members have included a person named Pony Diver, one called the Seven Fields of Aphelion, someone known as Power Pill Fist, and a keyboardist who goes by Father Hummingbird. The publicist at the time told me that they were honored to be asked, but nonetheless declined. They didn't want to talk about themselves. It would ruin it. The album I got in the mail was called Eating Us. It was actually kind of a play for respectability, produced by a guy who'd helped the Flaming Lips make hits. But it still sounds like the soundtrack to a movie about the highest heck religious rites of some race of people from the center of the earth. sound like a band. It feels like it was written and recorded by a purple gas oozing through the cracks in the walls of a prison cell on Mars. Black Moth Super Rainbow is both meditative and slightly discomforting, beautiful and a little scary. Someone singing a lullaby from the other side. Maybe explaining Black Moth Super Rainbow really does ruin it. So, I say just listen. That's my outshot. come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Perello. Our production assistant, Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Special thanks to Jennifer Marmer, who's been helping out. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows and extended versions of many of our interviews, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. 
help to make Bullseye even better by taking a quick survey. Just go to npr.org slash bullseye survey and tell us what you think. That's npr.org slash bullseye survey. Thank you. Our outgoing producer this week, her last week, is Julia Smith. Uh, Julia's been working with us since I was just a guy in an apartment in Silver Lake. Uh, she is our first real producer and uh, so grateful to her for all these years of help. So she's on to greener pastures and we wish her all of the best, but we're very grateful uh, for all the hard work that she's put in. Thank you, Julia. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 